This week on the show, we ask the question one more time, why use OpenBSD, the second part of Peter Hanstein's article is what we're reading. FreeBSD on the RISC-V architecture. OpenBSD web sign issue four is what we're looking at. Ending up like GNOME is what Suleen asks herself. OpenSense 21.7.5 and what's new in there. Jenkins with FreeBSD agents in EC2 and more and more and more and more in this week's episode of BSD. Now, episode 431, FreeBSD EC2 Agents, recorded on the 17th of November 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show or want to enjoy ad-free episodes or other perks, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash bsdnow. This way you can support the show a little bit and enjoy some extra perks that normal users don't get. Welcome. I'm ben, your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. We have a fresh episode for you, prepared, baked in the oven, and put it out just in time to cool it down a little bit. Headlines start with what every IT person needs to know about OpenBSD Part 2, because we had Part 1 on the show earlier, two weeks ago, I'm not uh, too sure, could well be. Why use OpenBSD, the question is. And uh, we probably remember some of the articles that, uh, or the part one, where on APNIC, APNIC, they had uh, basically explained what OpenBSD is and why uh, some of the project goals are a bit different than the other BSDs. Uh, Peter Henstein wrote this, and he is known in the BSD world for the PF books, among other things. And he writes, uh, Functional, free, and secure by default, OpenBSD remains a crucial yet largely unacknowledged player in the open source field. This series aims to highlight the project's signature, security features, and development practices, raise a sharp focus on correct and secure code, coupled with continuing code audit, as well as the project's role as a source of innovation in security practices and an upstream source for numerous widely used components, such as OpenBSD's uh, OpenSSH, PF, LibreSSL, and others, he had focused in part one on the history, and this one will focus on the usage and other experiences for users that um, then will look at part three. We'll then look at the packet filter, and that packet filter, he probably means PF, and he has certainly the expertise to talk about this. So the question is, why use OpenBSD, what it is like? What is OpenBSD like for a user or a developer, and why is it better? So Peter would say that the short version is that it's a real Unix unlike the Linuxes of the world that spent years muddling through an evolutionary succession of init systems and have ended up more or less settling on the ever-expanding SystemD, which seems to have tentacles in everything and is on a clear course to replacing most of what we have traditionally thought as the base system, OpenBSD has stayed with and refined a traditional BSD init. So you can have both uncluttered services management and a base system that consists of programs that, for the most part, adhere to the classical Unix philosophy, that every program should do exactly one thing and do that well. And if you are a developer, you will also appreciate hearing that the base system of well-designed programs have all the readable and useful man pages already containing basic Unix developer tools along with the C and C++ compiler. Clang were supported, GCC were necessary, plus Perl and a host of tools. 
Basically everything that need is needed to build the base system from a fresh checkout of the source code is contained in the base system on a default install. Danny talks about ported software because those are the software that uh, comes extra to OpenBSD and that goes under slash user local. Uh, once you have installed uh, the thing called OpenBSD on whatever hardware you have, keeping it in keeping in mind that you can run a selection of 14 platforms ranging from fairly ancient kit to a modern hardware, you will likely want to install ported third-party software from packages and that is done using package underscore add which will suck in whatever you tell it to fetch from the same mirror you installed from or what appears to be the most local ones. And there is more software available for other popular and exotic platforms. And in particular, the OpenBSD 6.9 release, the most mainstream platform, AMD64, came with 11,310 pre-built and installable packages, while MIPS64 had only 8,182, uh, 8, and the MIPS64EL uh, platform is marked as still building well that's probably until the next release is out uh, installing pre-built packages is almost always more convenient and is recommended in most cases rather than compiling them yourself but if you or for other reason the other wants to build your own from a cvs checkout of the ports tree you are free to do that at the cost of your own time watching the process then he has a section about the installer that was always good got, that was always good that even got better uh, when he found OpenBSD more than 20 years ago, his main Unix exposure was from working uh, with Linuxes and FreeBSD. What attracted him to OpenBSD and finally had him put an OpenBSD 2.5 CD set was the strong focus on security and code correctness. And the CD set and the classic wireframe daemon t-shirt finally arrived in the mail. I, uh, he set about at first to install it on whatever spare hardware he had lying around. And I guess the rest is history. Then there's a section about now something for your laptop hardware support and where he talks about the uh, efforts going into this space from the OpenBSD folks. So he fast forwards there from uh, some 20 years and uh, last article that he published uh, and even got a Norwegian mainstream IT news site at digi.no mention it. Uh, centers on a few moments involving new OpenBSD developments. He took some interaction with OpenBSD developers but those interactions led to his new laptop with an 11th generation Intel Core chipset, working even better with OpenBSD. Yes, OpenBSD developers and a significant subset of their user base run OpenBSD on their laptops. Uh, he uses a Mac and a work-issued ThinkPad with Ubuntu Linux 2, but life is not complicated without an OpenBSD laptop. Or not complete, not, not complete. Life is not complete without an OpenBSD laptop. That other one is questionable. Uh, then he has a reason uh, listed why use OpenBSD, IPsec. Then he talks about IPsec and why that is useful with the IPsec control utilities and the etc uh, ipsec.conf. And he shows a little example for that. And then has a section on the thing that lured him in. Uh, we probably should keep that to you. And the other parts of the well-written article uh, because that definitely shows uh, what OpenBSD is about and what kind of love and care went into the operating system. It's a great article. I love hearing about how um, people are brought into projects. I love hearing mm -hmm. everyone's stories. They're always great. Yeah, and it's like, oh, it's been so long now that I'm with this project. It seemed like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the best stories are ones that happen like, for me, I have like rosy ideas about what was happening in the 90s and early 2000s. So it's really cool seeing people talk about this because I was yeah. I was quite young then. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure for other people, they're like, 
if you hear like yeah, the stories from Warner Losh or John Baldwin about how they got involved in BSD Unix, you're like, wow, that's really cool. Which yeah, they've been, that. they've been around for a long time. I, when I was in school, they were already on that system programming. And it's like <laughs> this for, for the longest time that I can think. Okay, cool. So next up, we have uh, another article by Clara Systems. And, and this time it is looking towards the future. FreeBSD on the RISC-V architecture. I can never remember if it's RISC-V or RISC-V. At RISC-V architecture, uh, the majority of people in the tech community are well aware of the two main chip architectures, x86 and ARM. Each has its own strengths and weaknesses. Today, however, we're continuing our conversation on RISC-V by introducing the FreeBSD. By the way, FreeBSD would work on RISC-V platforms. If you need to catch up, read our previous entry on the topic. Uh, which was an introduction to the RISC-V architecture, the new kid on the block. The software and hardware worlds are constantly evolving, so no one can ever get too comfortable. For decades now, much of the world has grown accustomed to the x86 architecture forming the basis of the personal computer. But the continued growth of 64-bit ARM architecture presents a new challenge to this notion. Large-scale changes of this type are inevitable, so it is important for a project of the scale and scope of FreeBSD to be proactive about supporting hardware platforms of the future and letting go platforms of the past. The RISC-V architecture is FreeBSD's youngest supported platform, uh, but despite its age, it has a lot of momentum behind it. This, arc this article will introduce the history of the platform and why the support is important for the FreeBSD project. A brief history. Ah, they, set, they tell you how to pronounce it. Uh, the RISC-V, pronounced RISC-V, ISA, started as a research project at the University of California, Berkeley in 2010. The intention behind this project was to provide a new CPU architecture free of licensing restrictions that exist in other ISAs, enabling entities in academia and industry alike to design, implement, and modify RISC-V CPUs without the need to pay heavy licensing fees. This continues to be the case as the ISA and related specifications are permissively permissively licensed under the BSD and Creative Commons licenses. RISC-V was not the first ISA to adopt such a license, but the fact that it has done so from its inception rather than later in its life offers something unique, a modern CPU architecture which anyone can adopt or extend free of charge. Work on FreeBSD's support for this new ISA began in 2015, with the initial version of the port being merged into the FreeBSD source tree at the beginning of the following year. While this early version ran mainly on software simulators and FPGA soft chips, this was no small feat. In fact, FreeBSD was the first mainstream open source OS to officially include RISC-V support in its source tree. Since then, support has continued to grow and improve. The release of FreeBSD 13 saw the platform support tier increase to tier two and the production of official release images. Despite recently celebrating its 10th birthday, RISC-V is still young on the scale of CPU architectures. There exist a few RISC-V systems capable of running at FreeBSD, with more arriving each year. But on the whole, these chips don't offer the price performance that is competitive with 64-bit ARM or x86. They have a section on porting, which you should read. Um, but the more, the more interesting thing here is why support a new architecture? With all this said, is the effort invested into supporting RISC-V and FreeBSD worthwhile? Surely the engineering efforts could have gone into it over the course of the past six years could have been used for other things. So is the expense justified? Consider the following expert from the FreeBSD's Committer's Guide, which described the project's point of view on the subject of supporting multiple architectures. FreeBSD is a highly portable operating system intended to function on many different types of hardware and architectures. Maintaining clean separation of machine-dependent, MD, 
and machine-independent MI code, as well as minimizing machine-dependent code is an important part of our strategy to remain agile with regard to current hardware trends. Each new hardware architecture supported by FreeBSD adds substantially to the cost of code maintenance, toolchain support, and release engineering. The notion that an architecture must justify its own maintenance cost is key to making decisions about support over time. There have been several architectures that have come and gone uh, along with their hardware and industry relevance. The most recent example being the removal of Spark 64 support in FreeBSD 13. With each new release, the support status of each platform should be considered. Being proactive about removal helps reduce the maintenance burden on the project. The decision to adopt support for a new architecture, um, a new FreeBSD architecture comes down to two factors, perceived interest and relevance to the project, someone willing to do the work. Both of these points should be obvious, but are worth dissecting a little bit. Without someone able to do the work, the software support may be incomplete or never arrive, despite any widespread interest. On the other hand, if someone were to show up one day with a complete port of FreeBSD for the VAX, they would face difficulties getting this work accepted upstream, as the future maintenance costs of such a thing are just not justified. For a specific case of RISC-V, it met both criteria early on, resulting in an initial port. Since then, its relevance to the project and industry has only increased, attacking more committers, contributors, and users willing to do the work. Thus, the platform continues to justify itself in the eyes of FreeBSD. So what will the future bring? At this point, it's still too early to clearly see the future of RISC-V. The ISA presents a compelling case as a replacement for small and or highly customizable, customized embedded CPUs due to its modular and extendable nature. Is also quickly becoming the clear favorite in academia, proving a cost-free and permissively licensed programming platform for research and testing. However, it's hard to say how well RISC-V will do in other areas of industry. To compete or in the server or commodity hardware spaces means going up against the giants, x86-64, 64-bit ARM. Although RISC-V hardware and software continues to improve year after year, it does not yet offer a clear advantage over more well-established architectures. Only time can tell how these things will unfold. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, interesting platform, interesting idea, and has the right license, as we would say in the BSD space. Yeah, it's really interesting that um, power, like the power architecture that you might know from PowerPC, being in the, the PlayStation and the Nintendo GameCube and old Macs, um, had this big resurgence um, with like Power 8 and Power 9. Like Power 9 was really popular. And then, like, no one's talking about it anymore. Yeah. Like, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, like were... Intel today, right? It's like, oh, everyone's on ARM or maybe someday Risk Five, and it's just this old architecture at one point. I mean, they're not completely out of the game. Yeah, I think I think they did like an intern. Like, I mean, I think Power Nine was the first platform to have PCI four available, which made it really interesting to a lot of people. But then they're not there with PCIe five at all. Um, I I have heard. Uh, rumors that there's like internal focus changes at IBM which lead to this, but it's a shame because they were they were pushing really hard and people were really interested. And then oh well, gone. Yeah, like one day to the next or one year to the next, there's a lot of happening that could totally change the industry or the the direction of all uh, yeah companies. In our news roundup, we have a, the fourth issue of the OpenBSD website. And that's uh, for people who are new to this. OpenBSD website is a well magazine on the internet and that has already put out uh, four issues. The last one this year, 
And it's a nice way of catching up with OpenBSD, what's happening there in a very compact format, especially since uh, they also do interviews with some of the OpenBSD developers. And uh, some of the too long didn't read has extra mouse support disabled that I think we covered in last uh, week's episode from where we talked about OpenBSD's uh, updates in uh, quick succession. Uh, then they have four errata for 7.0 stable. Wayland makes its way into the ports tree on OpenBSD. Great to hear. And lots of hardware setup news. Uh, they have some recent current changes, but I think we should focus on the interview part uh, because that I think is interesting to see kind of the people behind the, the commits that we normally don't see. Uh, so why don't we read this with uh, questions and answers? So they interviewed uh, THFR and uh, agreed to a short interview for the website. And uh, do you want to read the question or should I? I, I I'll, I'll read the questions and you can be the jerk. And I reply, I do imposter. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you introduce yourself briefly? Okay, so THFR writes, I'm in my late 30s as of the time of this interview. I'm a German expat living in the United States with my wife and two wonderful cats called Starbuck and Moxie. My second favorite hobby is probably snowboarding. I like to think that I'm probably the first and only OpenBSD developer who works as a physician in their day job. How and when did you join the project? I encountered and installed OpenBSD first in 2013 to 2014, and once I reevaluated my priorities with personal computers, it served me well for all my essential day-to-day -day computing needs. I noticed that I kept booting into a secondary operating system, Linux, Windows, just to get the occasional break and play a video game. I got annoyed by that, and as OpenBSD's philosophy and features were more important to me than the games, I decided to explore what can be done with games on OpenBSD rather than the other way around. At the time, uh, a walk at OpenBSD was quite active on OpenBSD and helped me get my first ports committed. Fueled by the success, especially with running a large library of games with FNA slash FNAI that hadn't been known to be compatible with small adjustments to Linux build, I kept it and despite not having much formal training in coding, I have been officially among the OpenBSD developers since 2018. You work a lot at bringing games to OpenBSD. Why? Isn't it easier to use Linux or Windows to play video games? Of course it is. It is probably best explained by the fact that, contrary to popular opinion, I'm far from a frequent or hardcore quote-unquote gamer. I enjoy them occasionally and in moderation, especially many of the more creative indie games quote-unquote of the recent decade. Frequently, I find the work of porting them way more enjoyable than the actual game. Working on games on OpenBSD has a very pioneering feel to it because it seems so outlandish at first sight. The advantage for me is that there is lots of relatively low-hanging fruit and little risk of breaking something that's critical to many users and developers. Yeah, that's true. There are certain purist uh, take on using OpenBSD that I disagree with, like that certain applications are frivolous and not worthy of developer attention. Games, watching videos, social media, or even a graphical user interface. Instead, I hope to increase the scope of use without sacrificing the core ideas driving the project. The one concern that I do agree with is not opening up new potential for security issues or exploits. That's why I'm overall happy that our USB devices are more locked down than many other systems. Additions uh, like Bentley's uh, or Bentley Ads use of Pledge and Unveil to emulators are particularly interesting for me and I would like to explore those areas a bit more in the future. There is or there has traditionally been such a 
dearth of games and obviously that every new one that works feels like a genuine enrichment of the possible experiences on this operating system. In your opinion, what is your greatest contribution to the project? I hope that my work on OpenBSD has helped veteran users expand their use of the operating system and proved assumptions wrong that OpenBSD is only for servers and routers. I maintain a stylistically unambitious Gemini capsule and webpage at playonbsd.com intended to help people who want to play games on OpenBSD find something that they would enjoy. How do you use OpenBSD outside of the development scope? Pretty much all around daily driver, listening to music, browse the web, watch videos. I even used OpenBSD for work while Citrix, there is a Chromium app called Citrix Workspace, until my employer updated the server without whitelisting this client. I need to follow up with them about this. Cool. That's interesting to have a physician uh, developing games. Yeah, the, the webzine is pulling. definitely worth checking out. I'm sure we're going to miss issues if they keep doing them weekly. Uh, I mm -hmm. particularly like the Rworks of the moment, which has Puffy yeah. running on an old PC. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay, next up, we have uh, an article by uh, Celine on her blog, and it's titled How I Ended Up Liking Gnome. And it was written by Celine on the 10th of November. Hi. This was a while without much activity on my blog. The reason is that I stabbed through my right index finger with a knife by accident. Ooh, the injury was so bad I could barely use my right hand because I couldn't move my index finger at all without pain. So I've been stuck using only my left hand for a month now. Good news is finally getting better. And I, I, yeah, I hope, I hope your hand gets better. That sounds awful. That sounds like a story she should mention at one point. Yeah. <laughs> this leads me to the, the topic of the article. Why I ended up liking Gnome? I think it was an implication that Gnome is like stabbing yourself in the hand. Uh, why I didn't use Gnome. I will first start about why I didn't use it before. I like to try everything all the time. I like disruption. I like having a hostile desktop shell computer environment to stay sharp and not being stuck on ideas. That is terrifying to me. Uh, my current setup was using FVWM or StumpWM, mostly keyboard driven, with many virtual desktops to spatially regroup different activities. However, with an injured hand, I've been facing a big issue. Most of my key bindings were for two hands, and it seemed too weird for me to change the binding to work with one hand. I tried to adapt using only one hand, but I got poor results, and using the cursor was not very effective because StumpWM is hostile to cursor, and FVWM is not really great for that either. The road to GNOME. With only one hand to use my computer, I found the awesome program iBoss Typing Booster to help me typing by auto-completing words, a bit like touchscreen phones. It worked out of the box with GNOME due to the iBoss integration working well. I used GNOME to debug the package, but I ended up liking it in my current condition. How do I like it now? Well, I was pestling about it for a few months ago, as I found it very confusing, um, because it was easy to use and spared me movement with my hands, absolutely. The activity menu is easy to browse. Icons are big. Dock is big. I've been using a trackball with my left hand instead of my usual right hand. Uh, aiming at a small taskbar was super hard, so I was happy to have big icons everywhere. Only when I wanted them. I actually always liked the Alt tab for browser and Alt 2 on my keyboard. The tab key is, uh, it, it's an upper, it's a superscript 2, so I'm, that's why I'm confused reading it. On my keyboard, the tab up the key up to tab is superscript two, must be tilde for QWERTY keyboards for switching into the same window. Alt tab actually displays everything available. It's not per virtual desktop. I can easily view windows or move between them using virtual desktop when pressing super key. This is certainly 
doing in Mate or XFCE2 without too much work, but it's out of the box with GNOME and it's perfectly usable without knowing any keyboard shortcuts. Mixed feelings. I'm pretty sure I'll return to my previous environment once my finger hand improves because I have a better feeling with it and I find it more usable. But I have to thank the GNOME project to work on this desktop environment that is easy to use and quite accessible. It's important to put into perspective when dealing with desktop environment. GNOME may not be the most performing and ergonomic desktop, but it's accessible, easy to use and forgiving uh, people who don't want to learn tons of key bindings or can't do them. This is a very recurrent question I see on IRC or forums. What's the best desktop environment? Window manager, what are you using? I stopped having a bold opinion about this topic. I simply reply, there are many desktop environments because there are many kinds of people and the person asking needs to figure out the one suiting them. And an update uh, on the 11th of November, using the XF dashboard program and assigning it to a super key allows to mimic the GNOME activity in your favorite window manager. Choosing windows among them uh, between desktops running applications, I think you can easily turn any window manager into something more accessible or at least GNOME-like. Yep, good, good conclusions there. So then we have updates from OpenSense. They have a new version out. This is 21.7.5. And they have in the intro section, FreeBSD security advisories and an issue with Intel-based IXGBE driver with ifconfig-v stalls. Uh, keep this release rolling. Also note that OpenSSH was updated to version 8.8, .8, which deprecates SSH-RSA. Usage, which is mainly an issue for client access from the OpenSense system to the outside and can be amended as per the suggestions in the respective release notes. And as promised, the development version includes the upgrade path to the 22.1 beta 1 release. This is an online beta with a few iterations over the FreeBSD 13 stable branch and eventually moved to FreeBSD 13.1 release as that becomes available. Highlights for 22.1 already include Suricata NetMap version 14 support for multi-gigabyte speed in IPS mode with RSS enabled. Uh, yeah, RSS. Separate VLAN max moving and permanent promiscuous mode setting. Tunable analytics provide automatic descriptions and type. IPsec tunnel overview ported to MVC with pagination. Proof point emerging threats rules for Suricata 5.0. Removed opportunistic interface address and read functions a console-based lag configuration support. Uh, they removed the state killing on gateway failure feature, improved the firmware update capabilities and no bind service awareness for virtual IPs. Then they have some updates in the 21.7.5 version to the system, the firewall, some of the firmware, plugins got updated and some of the ports that ship with it. Cool. Very nice update to OpenBSD. Then we have Jenkins with FreeBSD agents in EC2. The namesake for this episode. And it's a and blog post find... by our friend yeah. Brad Davis. Oh, yes. Yeah, he keeps blogging, I think, uh, for a while now. And I only discovered his blog a while ago, so I thought we should give it a mention here. <laughs> so uh, Brad Davis uh, writes... Uh, one of my customers needs to have builds done on ARM64 hosts, but they lack the necessary hardware to do so in-house and procuring such hardware can be very difficult due to vendors uh, EOL some hardware without the replacement hardware being ready to ship. Currently, they already have Jenkins configured with a couple of AMD64 build agents that do most of the work. So we wanted something that could just drop to the existing infrastructure. So we started evaluating different options like Equinix Metal, formerly Packet.net, and AWS EC2. 
Both provide nice options for being able to fire up a host and do a build and then shut it off when the build is complete. So Equinix Metal uh, has some decent ARM server options, but their FreeBSD support is way behind. At minimum, we need FreeBSD 13.0 support, and while their sales folks say that it is coming, it's been a few wee, uh, oh, months now, and nothing yet. Granted, in the future, we would probably roll our own image. That is not something we wanted to do right away, as it would delay getting things working. Then EC2. AWS EC2 is the heavyweight in the room, and while I would rather not use them for various reasons, we still have to evaluate them. The C6G instance type offers many different configuration sizes for almost any workload. The pricing is a bit more than what Equinix Metal offers, but since we're just using this for random builds and the machines do not need to be run 24-7, we can uh, leverage the spot pricing, which is quite attractive, often less than one-third of the cost of normal. So with a hefty discount and pricing in hands, let's see what this takes to set up Jenkins to use FreeBSD on EC2. And so he walks us about uh, the AMI setup, basically running uh, after the init script has run, uh, package install dash y open jdk 8 isn't that going to become open jdk 11 at one point but yeah. i have no idea uh -huh. then uh, he also installed git light then creates the z pool for that so that it's using z standard uh the pool is called scratch very nice and so he uh, creates user source user object and var jenkins data sets on those uh then he clicks the advanced button to show the user data so that the ssh public key can be installed for the root user. Normally this is bad practice, but the FreeBSD builds require root, so let's just go ahead and make it the default. So he has a nice shell script, short and straightforward to do that, fetching that and changing the ownership and then permitting root login. Kids don't do this at work or at home. Uh, arguably it could be improved to support multiple SSH keys, but for now this works well enough. In the future, we will talk about creating custom AMI images that are preceded with the tools we need, such as the Git client and Java to prevent networking or other issues from making our instances come up properly. Oh, good. And uh, he has a couple of tags already to other uh, articles he's written, so check out those as well if you're already on that blog. Next up, we feature our uh, feedback and questions section, but we should always mention the sponsor for this episode, which is Tarsnap. Tarsnap has been sponsoring this episode or this podcast uh, for a number of months and years now even. Uh, and we are quite happy customers of Tarsnap because they provide the actual service we love because it's from a utility that we know, Tar, based on Tar, Tarsnap was built and it has the bells and whistles we need, but nothing else. It's very plain and simple. It's giving us the online backups to be truly paranoid about because we could look into the source code for any kind of backdoors or things they're doing with our data in the meantime while we're not looking. Tarsnap is our backup solution of choice. We'll uh, have some files that should not be going out onto some uh, provider's web server or their backup service in the cloud unencrypted, but Tarsnap is encrypting all of this locally. Before all our files leave our disks, they always get encrypted first. And then they stay there on the backup service and wait and wait and wait until a fateful day happens and we need our files back. Sometimes because of a disaster, sometimes because we need to do our taxes and you'll be the judge which one is uh, worse. But whatever the reason, you get the files in the reverse order. You get the unencryption 
done only when you keep your key around. If you don't have your key anymore, not even the Tarsnap folks can help you unencrypt those files anymore. So save this key in a separate secure location and then you get the files back that you once backed up. You can do this yearly in an interval, but you can also do hourly intervals, put it as a cron job. Uh, because the more backups you do, the better it is. And they, of course, do delta replication. So you don't copy everything over all the time, only the things that have changed, if at all. And they can also show you how much you would uh, expect to save with a Tarsnap backup. So you can simulate how much uh, it would cost and how much data you would uh, actually backup. And it's all nicely described in their documentation. And if you want to read a... Uh, more thorough book about it. There's one by Michael W. Lucas called Tile Snap Mastery that explains everything around the backup service and why it was created, some of the tools and how to use it properly. And you will hopefully find Tarsnap a good solution for your own backup needs and use the service sooner rather than later. Our feedback and questions section get filled by our users, readers, and fans sometimes. Uh, our email address for you sending us the feedback is feedback at bsdnow.tv. And remember, we're doing a special Christmas episode where you have the chance to ask us any questions that you always wanted to know from us, from the people doing the show uh, in front of the microphone or behind the scenes. Uh, so ask us these questions, and once we have enough of those, we'll be happy to do one for a uh, Christmas or New Year's episode, depending on how many we get. The first one we have a question from this week is Andreas uh, about ZFS and Trim. So Andreas writes, greetings, my name is Andreas. I had a question about the FreeBSD, ZFS, and Trim combinations. have posted it on the forum earlier. However, they pointed me towards you, telling... Alan Jude hosts the BSD Now podcast and is active in ZFS development. They take questions and may give answers. So my question is located uh, here. If you could kindly read in the free time or provide an answer, I'd be most grateful. And if you I click through to the forum question and it basically boils down to how often do you suggest doing Z pool trim Z root? Um, I did feel a bit left out because we can answer questions too. So I asked Alan yeah, yeah. instead. Um, <laughs> I asked Alan and Alan gave a very helpful answer. Uh, Alan says, um, if trim is important to performance, you might just set auto trim equals on. I think that is even the default on FreeBSD. Some SSDs need trim to perform well, others do not. Then of the ones that need trim, some act badly, long stalls, etc. if you give them too many trims. So for some, it is better to do it in bulk occasionally, Z-pool trim Z-root once a month, rather than consistently Z-pool set trim equals on Z-root. So yeah, um, it, it depends, and it depends on the drive. Oh, sorry, his first part of response was, that usually turns out to depend on the brand model of SSD, which is resoundingly, yes. <laughs> you, should, you, you can have results from trying this. And I think the answer is really you need to try this to see. Mm. Yeah, it's difficult to get without any more data about the Tara drive itself. <laughs> <laughs> but nice that the people on the FreeBSD forums uh, mention our show there. I I'm glad they're shilling for us, answers. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for that. We'll also refer back to FreeBSD forums because they also have some uh, nice sections for answering questions. And they do this more often than we do, right? And throughout the whole week, we were just doing this every Wednesday. Um, 
so yeah, uh, hopefully that helps you with the trim parts of that uh, question. And next is Hamza, and Hamza writes about Swift on the BSDs. And that goes, hello, BSD Now team. Swift, an open source language developed by Apple, is supported on Apple platforms, Linux and Windows, but it's not supported on any of the BSDs. There appeared to be some interest in porting it a few years ago, but that has withered away. I wondered why there is a sporadic interest, but no sustained effort. Is it because Swift Server Working Group is still nascent and Swift on Server uh, and Swift on Server doesn't have wider community adoption yet? Does the BSD community expect the language community to step up and do more, like the Python, Go, and other communities? Is there just no intersection of developer groups interested in BSDs and Swift? I was just curious to know what the BSD Now community and the BSD community think about this situation. Thanks for the sustained high quality of the show. Thank you. Yeah, that, th thank you, Hamza. Uh, I mean, I looked at the Swift port um, when it was quite fresh. And while the language was running on FreeBSD, basically all of the um, like the dependent tooling around it, so like building packages through automated systems, was, was not ported over. Um, and so I don't think it was ever mature enough to ever get any users, which is probably why the effort fell away. I think it a lot. I mean, it takes a long, sustained effort for a lot of these things, and you could see that when we we interviewed Brian Callahan as well. Like he spent years getting uh, Dlang running on OpenBSD, and it's probably a lot of effort to not only get Swift running on on a BSD, but to keep it running. Um, and a lot of the time, this takes money. Like it takes someone to pay developers for a couple of years to get the platform going. And then they have a reason for it to be there. And once it's mature, it's I think that the effort could cut back. But Swift has evolved a lot in the seven years or so it's been uh, uh, publicly available. And so maybe it will get more mature and the server working group will calm down and we'll get a better platform. Yeah, uh, it's always who is interested in. I mean, when a new language comes out, there's a lot of uh, excitement about it. I think the BSDs are more into the Rust uh, language because it uh, has a compelling feature of being very secure and uh but that doesn't discount uh that we should never have swift on bsds at all this is just a different uh environment different language yeah and i, I think swift being driven by a company probably makes it a bit harder to to pour over because there are fewer of the the user developers that are porting it available because more of them are inside companies um and when it is more community driven like the way rust is then there are more developer users that have interest but yeah, it might, it might change over time. It might get more stable. There might be some killer app that people really want. And typically where you would find efforts like that is the quarterly status reports where people say, oh, this is a work in progress and please help test or find bugs. Uh, that way you can first know about these efforts and then also offer help if you're a Swift developer or want to have this uh, materialized and can offer maybe not directly development, but testing if you have some expertise in this. Uh, People are usually happy to uh, get in touch with people who want something done and can help out with testing. Okay, next up, we have a, a question from Kendall. Kendall asks, how many mirrors? I like to say two. Uh, sorry. Hello, everyone. I've been running a six-drive pool, RAID Z2 VDEV, in my FreeBSD server for years now without a problem. I started with one terabyte, then upgraded to two terabyte, and now four terabyte. However, I decided to start using mirrors for a smaller hit to the wallet when upgrading. I was wondering what a maximum recommended size is for the amount of mirrored VDEVs in a pool. Right now I have a separate pool with three mirrored pairs, 
two by two terabytes and one by eight terabyte pair. I would like to eventually have three by eight terabyte pairs, but after that, do you recommend adding more? How many can or should I do? I have 15 slots in the chassis total with three empty, but I'm thinking of converting with six drives in the RAID Z2 mirrors and putting them into the mirror pool. So total would be six mirror pairs of four and eight terabytes. I could even fit one more pair in there for seven total. Does this sound like a bad idea? Should I have a separate pool? The pool is just for file serving. I have a separate SSD pool for jails and beehive. If you don't mind me asking, how do you configure your mirrored pools? I appreciate any help and advice. Sincerely, Kendall. Yeah, so just because you can do a lot of mirror drives doesn't mean you should. Uh, so ZFS, uh, I got this from the ZFS book. I created myself a little table so that I can look this up. Uh, that easily supports 36 disk VDEV configurations with like uh, 18 times two disk mirrors, which is just crazy fast in reading. But uh, yeah, as you probably know, writing is a bit different because each of these mirrors need also have this data and uh, confirm that it was written. And of course, files uh, disk space is also important because you basically have the uh, the space available because of the redundancy. Uh, and how many of those could fail? Well, if you put it there, the tolerance is one per VDEF. If two VDEFs uh, or two disks in the same VDEF die, then that's pretty much uh, game over there. So I would split, uh, if you have a large disk uh, amount, then I would split this maybe into a few smaller pools. Not, I mean, your main pool should have enough redundancy. That's definitely a given and you're on a good track there. But why create one gigantic pool with a lot of disks in there when you can have multiple smaller pools? Like maybe a pool uh, could serve the videos or the documents or some other parts. So you can decide what kind of pool should have which data rather than, oh, put everything in one big pool and then have data sets uh, this distinguishing the content there or maybe one pool is one for backups from different systems that you keep on that one or um one is more backed up more frequently or is doing uh more more scrubs of sorts so think about not putting all eggs in one basket or not all the discs in one pool as uh, you have the analogy there so divide this up in a logical way that's what that would my recommendation would be. But you, of course, can put all the disks in the world in one big pool. Just a matter of how do you back up this pool? How big is the other pool that you back up to then? So some of these conf uh, configurations are possible, but consider also uh, what happens when a drive dies or when you need to do backups or scrub this whole thing, how long this would take. So having smaller pools available is probably also good to be a bit more flexible in that regard. So uh, I think that's it so far. Definitely let us know how you liked the episode. We're on uh, Twitter, twitter.com slash now. And if you want to support the show, we should mention our uh, Patreon one more time. It's patreon.com slash now, where you can say, ah, uh, yes, uh, there's a little tip jar here. Uh, that's my appreciation to the show. Or you just leave it as it is. The show will always be free for you. But if you want to not have the ad episode in there or a special thank you message from us that we have for the people who use uh, our Patreon, then uh, this is what you get this way. Or if you have other suggestions we could do on Patreon, then let us also know we're still new to this. 
but we're always listening to our listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Tom, as well. And then next time we'll have Alan back. Maybe I should take a break at one point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll keep this interesting. Interesting.